0: Uh, here's a sentence that will get your attention, Christmas, Christmas is about light in the darkness, that's all I want you to remember this morning, Christmas is about light in the darkness. We, we live in a dark world, don't we? I don't know if you caught the news last night, there was uh, a stabbing in Leyton Stowe on the tube station, there was someone who shouted out, um, this is for Syria, and then with a machete they slit someone's throat, It took the police seven minutes to get there. The guy was tasered. He's now under arrest. You turn on the news, you see the fact that this week we've gone to war with Syria. In Syria, there's been huge personal displacement. There have been atrocities that we've seen on the internet and the TV. We've heard on the radio that, to be quite honest, I wish I hadn't heard about. And you look uh, on the news. You look and go to the Tube for an evening out in London. Thinking further afield, you think of the financial insecurity there's been for the last five years. You look at the state of your own marriage. You look at the state of your own children. And you think, actually, it's a pretty dark world. And then you come closer to home, and I look into my own heart, and I think that's where the problem begins. It's easy, isn't it, to think that the darkness is out there, the problems are overseas, the issues are in town, in the city centres of London, and in France. But the Bible says, if we are honest, that the problem is far closer to home. There are issues in my marriage. There are issues in my parenting. There are issues in my life. But the problem actually begins far closer. It's in my own heart. And if you're honest about yourself, and if you know yourself, and especially if you're a Christian, you should know yourself, as God reveals the hidden recesses of your heart, the darkness is actually quite deep and it begins in your own heart. We can do all the thinking we want. Governments can get together, and that's appropriate, and that's right. They can vote. They can consult. Uh, Forces can come together. Enemies can be identified. Armies can be sent. Uh, Air warfare can be fought. Perhaps even uh, soldiers can be sent in on the ground. But the solutions in Syria The solutions geopolitically, the solutions financially, the solutions perhaps in Birmingham where a paedophile ring is smashed, where people are arrested. That's significant and it's important, but it will be temporary because the darkness will take another form because the darkness out there actually begins in here. That's the honest uh, analysis that the Bible has. The problem is out there, but the problem begins in here. And the Bible says that Christmas, Christmas is all about God doing something about the darkness. Christmas is about God doing something, not temporary, but something permanent and lasting and significant and eternal about the problems we all face. The problem of our own darkness, the problems of our own sin, the reality of suffering, the reality that we all experience in a broken world. I've got the potential in my heart, so have you, let's be honest, I am evil. We are greedy. We're certainly broken and needy. We're sinful. We're sick and we're sore. But we have a Saviour sent from heaven to earth who's come as light into darkness. That's what these seven verses are about. The birth of Jesus Christ, it's the epicentre of the whole of our faith. It's all too brief, but we're going to spend a few weeks looking at the first 21 verses of Luke chapter 2. We're going slow, we will speed up. For those of you that are new, we're spending a whole year in Luke's gospel. It's an eyewitness account of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has been sent from heaven to earth by God the Father, God the Son has come into all of human history, as light to deal with the darkness, but for good. And in the first uh, four verses of Luke chapter 2, Luke says, This is something I want you to realize Christmas is a fact. Okay? Christmas is a fact. He says that in verse 1 to verse 3. The epicentre of Christianity is right here. It's the foundation of Christmas. It's launched a thousand Christmas plays. It's been portrayed on a billion Christmas cards. What goes on in these first seven verses? But why has Luke written it? Has he always wanted to kind of choreograph a Christmas play? So he writes seven verses so he can actually do it. Is there kind of a hidden interior designer or a graphic designer? Tell you what I know, i got it wrong. Is there a hidden Johnny Connerby in Luke's heart? So he wants to design something, so he provides some fuel for the creative fires to burn. That's not why verses 1 to 7 are written. The reason why verses 1 to 7 are written in Luke chapter 2 is because it's true. It's because Christmas is true. It's a historical reality. It's fact. I mean, look down at verse 1. Here's Luke to uh, paraphrase. Luke is saying, you know the year when Caesar uh, Caesar Augustus, you know when he organized the census to uh, organize and count how many people there were in the whole Roman world? Well, at that time, Jesus Christ was born in the world and in the earth. That's what it says in verse one. He's rooting it in history. He's saying that this is true. Here is another date stamp that we're going to see again and again in Luke's Gospel. you remember back to last week or a few weeks ago we looked at chapter 1 verses 1 to 4? You might want to flick back to it. It's the start of the whole book and it's so important. Verse 1, many have undertaken to draw up an account. Verse 2 of chapter 1, I've spoken to eyewitnesses. Verse 3 of chapter 1, I've carefully investigated everything from the beginning. So, do you get the point? This is careful, hard, scholarly work. It's there at the beginning of chapter one. It's there at the beginning of chapter two. Luke's making the same point. This actually happened. Christmas and the whole of the life and ministry the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus that we'll get to a bit beyond Easter it actually happened. Christmas is true. So, you don't need to feel sentimental at Christmas time, you don't need to doubt that this may or may not have happened. Luke is saying this has happened. And the reason why I'm telling you that it's happened is not because I want you to feel warm and fuzzy about chestnuts and open fire. I don't really care about Jack Frost and the state of your nose. I'm writing that this is historical truth and the reason why I'm writing down is because it's true. And because it's true, you won't feel sentimental but you will feel full of joy because it's true truth. It really happened. He's making a historical, but also a theological point. A point in history, but also a point about God. That's what theological means. Let me give you a, a minute on history. This guy mentioned in verse 1, Caesar Augustus. He was, the, um, he was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Through a really bloody military campaign and battle, he turned the Roman world into an empire. There were warring factions, and basically, uh, this guy Augustus, he was so bloodthirsty that he said, right, actually, I'm going to be head and shoulders above the lot of you, I'm going to rule by force, you will either salute to me or you will die. And very quickly, after this bloodthirsty campaign, there was one empire, rather than just the Roman kind of rulers and sectarian government, there's one empire and there's one emperor, and his name was Caesar Augustus. He rewrote history as emperors always do. And this is what he said of his adopted father. He said, Julius Caesar, actually, he was divinity. He was so great that he was God. He was godlike. And then the poets who wanted to keep their heads and wanted to keep the favor of Caesar Augustus, he said, Caesar Augustus, he is a savior. Caesar Augustus, he is Lord. And if his father is God, then that makes him the son of God. And yet here is Luke who knows all of this. And he takes our attention not to a throne room of an emperor. But he takes our attention, verses 1 to 7, to a manger where there is a new king who in his lifetime will be called, not A, but the son of God and who will rule a new kingdom. And Luke wants us to see that Christmas is fact. Far away from the Roman power base of of Rome itself, in this little backwater town called Bethlehem, God is doing something amazing to dispel the darkness and to bring forth light with the king of the whole world being born in a manger. The king who is David's son the king of royal decree and of royal descent. So verses one to three say Christmas, Christmas is fact. It's a short point, here's a longer one. If Christmas is a fact, verses one to three, verses four to seven tell us that Christmas acts as a blueprint or a pattern for the whole of Jesus's life. Verses four to seven, Christmas is a pattern or a blueprint for for the whole of his life. What do I mean? Look down at those verses. Mary, she, she wrapped him, Jesus, in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. Luke is really, really careful about how he has constructed the gospel. People say he was a doctor, he's certainly a scholar. People have sought to dispel his account and people have ended up becoming Christians after they've carefully looked at it. But this chapter is so sentimentalised, you kind of look at it with kind of rose-tinted spectacles. And as I've read it through again this week, what strikes me is the poverty of the scene. Yeah? The poverty of the scene. What do I mean? Look on it to verse 24. Uh, we we'll look at this in a couple of weeks' time. Jesus is older now, just days older, and his parents, according to Jewish custom, take him to the temple to give thanks to God for the birth of their son. When you went to the temple to give thanks to God for the birth of your son or daughter, depending on your income, you would give a certain thank offering to God. So if you had loads of money in the bank, if you had a gold kind of Amex card, you would give a certain gift. If you had not a gold or a platinum, but you only had a Tesco's club card, a credit card, you would give a smaller offering. And then you had the poor. Look at verse 24. Of Luke chapter 2, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, what offering did they give? A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons? In other words, that's shorthand to say these guys were poor. Mary and Joseph were so poor, they were not in the upper class, the middle class, they were in the lowest of the low. And Luke has constructed the whole of this narrative to say these guys were really, really poor. They were poor when they went to God to give an offering, a thank offering for the birth of their son. They were so poor that when the baby was coming, verses 4 to 7 of Luke chapter 2, here is is a new husband-to-be. Here is a pregnant woman, nine months maxed out. She's hobbling along And what does any dutiful husband do? He pays whatever he can because before the National Health Service existed, he wants somewhere four walls for his wife to give birth, the safety and the nurture and care that she needs. And what can he do? Nothing. Why? He's poor. There is no room in the inn, so out would come his wad of cash and he would buy somewhere else for his wife to give birth, but he can't because he's so poor. That's why... Luke says that Jesus was born, he wasn't born in a first-class Marriott room. He wasn't born in a penthouse. He was born in the outhouse, so to speak, to fulfill the prophecy. But this couple are the poorest of the poor. They're the lowest of the low. He's got no financial callouts. He's got no influence. He's got no friends that he can knock on the door of and say, please, can we have a room just for one night? Please, can we have your spare room just for two nights? because he's so poor and Luke wants us to see this I don't know if you saw the cover of the spectator just a few days ago did you see it it's a wonderful piece of artwork that just smacks into all our sentimentality at Christmas time please google it when you get home and you'll see a color crib with a baby in it but it's surrounded by black and white war-torn street of Palestine there's a wonderfully written article on the inside that says we need to get through all the chime and cheer and uh, festivities of Christmas to see what a brutal story the first Christmas really was. I think he's bang on. This is a brutal story of a couple who are struggling to make ends meet. They've got nowhere to lay their head. A husband who longs to provide probably but who can't. And that's why Jesus is born not surrounded by kind of dewy-eyed parents with not a sweat bead on their brow. There's no cows in sight looking over calmly in the crib. There's blood and mucus on this little baby boy who's the saver of the world. And Luke wants us to see right from the beginning of his life there is a pattern to the life and ministry of Jesus. And it's one of rejection. It's rejection all through his life. In this uh, cultural environment, there would have been a a great burden on hospitality, but there's nowhere for him to lay his head. Jesus is rejected. Mary and Joseph are rejected. And that's why, verses 4 to 7, they're shoved outside, and this saviour of the world is laid in a manger. Think how vulnerable they would have felt. No soft focus here, no dreary sentimentality. The whole point of the passage here is to see the incarnation of God becoming human flesh. But Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, right from his birth, is rejected. He's rejected. He's incredibly poor, and therefore he's in a feed trough, rejected by those he's come to save. This is the paradigm, this is the blueprint. This is the pattern for all of his life, for all of his ministry. Jesus doesn't come as a philosopher, does he, with a kind of a, an Oxford Don cap on. He doesn't come to the serenity of Oxford or Cambridge with those great oak-panelled kind of hallway. He doesn't come as a general in the safety of a bunker. He doesn't come as a king with all the trappings of glory, does he? Here he comes, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Come to the lowliest place he can. He's in poverty. He's surrounded by need. And he's rejected. Came across this wonderful uh, hymn this week by a man called William Billings. He's an American, but that's okay. Sorry, Jason. Couldn't resist. He, uh, he's an American composer. He's written a wonderful Christmas uh, carol. And in it, it says this. Seek not in courts or palaces nor royal curtains draw, but search the stable, see your God extended on the straw. So why did God choose to come in this way? Why did he choose to come in weakness, not strength? Why did he come in humility, not glory? Why did he choose to come in that way? So again, we're in a week where our, go- our government has decided to go to war against Syria, to overthrow evil forces that have done atrocities and there's oppression and there's difficulty and there's real physical, palpable darkness. But why did God choose to come in this way? Why did he choose to come in weakness? Our forces will be engaged in a war for a long period of time. They will solve some of the issues, but there will be many more that will come. But why did God choose to come in this way? One of the most often questions I get, I'm sure you get it too, if you're open about your Christian faith is, if there is a God, why doesn't he end suffering, full stop? Why doesn't he end it, period? If he came the first time, why didn't he just cure all the evil, all the sick, all the brokenness, mend all the sin that was in the world? Why didn't he choose to end it? Why didn't he choose to come in this way? If Jesus chose the first time he came to wipe out evil and suffering and sin in its completion and its complexity and its entirety, the first time he came, that means he would wipe out each one of us. There wouldn't be any one of us left because the source of evil is not out there. It's in here. The darkness is in our hearts. It's Martin Luther who said our hearts are literally curved in upon themselves. We don't give God the glory and the honor and the praise and the renown that is due his name. We're more consumed with ourselves than anybody else. But think about this. Jesus did not come the first time to be accepted, but rejected. He didn't come to bring judgment on the sin and suffering there was in the world, but to receive the just penalty for that judgment, rather for that sin and pain that there is in the world he didn't come to bring judgment but to bear it rather he didn't come with a fanfare of praise but he came to be crucified on a cross that's the gospel message he didn't come to bring judgment the first time but to bear it but he will return to bring judgment he came to take rejection he came to take the rejection that we deserve for our sin and wrongdoing so that one day he can return to end all the sin and suffering and pain and rejection that we feel even now. Think of the uh, religions of the world. Buddha says that salvation, salvation is possible. Salvation is possible. There is a possible uh, salvation that you can get yourself by pursuing enlightenment. If you try hard enough, you will find it. Muhammad in Islam says, salvation is submission to the will of Allah. All you need to do is to try hard enough. But Christianity says the darkness in your heart is too great that you cannot fix it yourself. You need a savior. You need someone outside of yourself to release the bondage that you're in. And Jesus Christ says, I've come to save you. It doesn't matter how hard and how difficult the situations you find yourselves in. doesn't matter how deep the darkness is in your own life. I have come to live a sufficient life, to die a sufficient death to save you. I've come to take the penalty for your sins and when I rise from the grave you will see that, says Jesus. I've defeated death, I've saved you from hell for heaven, says Jesus. And here's Jesus placed in a wooden animal trough when later in his life, 30 years later, he'll be placed on a wooden cross. Here's Jesus rejected by an innkeeper at the beginning of his life, this is the pattern. But later in his life, he'll be hung on a cross for the sins of the world. And the whole world literally will be saying crucify him. Here's Jesus wrapped in old cloths, verses 4 to 7 of Luke 2. And later in his life, he'll be stripped naked. And any clothes that he's got are sold for a few pieces of silver. Here's Jesus and his parents rejected by those in Bethlehem. And yet when he's hung on a cross, he'll be rejected even by his own father for the sins of the world. It's the pattern of his life right here in Luke 2. That's why Isaiah can say he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like, like like one from whom men would hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely, says Isaiah, he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. This is the gospel. Jesus was rejected so that we might be accepted. He was punished so that we will not be. It's the truth of Christmas. It's the pattern of Christmas. And here are three implications of that. Here are three implications of the truth of Christmas, that Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth, that he was born in a cattle trough. And here's some implications about the fact that we also see the pattern of what it means to be a Christian as well. We live in an age of skepticism, right, where you believe nothing, You believe absolutely nothing, but here is a a reminder from the Gospel of Luke, right at the beginning, that there is hope in the world. Just after we were married, Joe and I went up to Northamptonshire for a holiday with the parents. Um, Not my parents, hers, I endured. One of the things that I remember is that we went down a tin mine. We went down a tin mine. And it was a moment of great chivalry and husbandry that I'd like to share with you. Uh, You don kind of one of those miner's hats. You go down into the belly of the earth. Your ankles are getting turned over on a mixture of the scalpings that are there from the little railway track, the sleepers, but also the metal railway things. There's water dripping down from the top of the ceiling, and you pay money for it. And down you go, and when you get to the bottom, you know what the guy's going to say. And you fear that he will say it, but I was okay because I was a man. He said, turn the light off. So you turn the light off and it's just pitch black as if you can feel it. You cannot literally see the hand in front of your face. I was trying to play a few jokes with my father-in-law, pinch his bottom and things like that. But to be quite honest, that minute or so that was dark was absolutely terrifying. It was darkness that you could feel. There was no light. And these miners did it year after year to get a little bit of tin, to get a little bit of pay. With all my masculinity diminished and my husbandry non-existent, I couldn't wait to turn the light back on because I wanted light in the darkness. I don't know how you have come to church this morning after our chaotic beginning. I don't know your story, some of you. It's very easy to be sceptical about life, but we live in a dark world, and it's a dangerous world. Jason shared very helpfully what happens when the military leave from the centre of Paris. What happens when the attacks increase in London and in the United Kingdom. We're going to feel just like our Parisian brothers and sisters. This passage speaks of hope in darkness, of light being turned on. It says no to scepticism, No to cynicism, because there's hope in the midst of darkness. God has answered our greatest need. So the first word is hope. The second application is a principle that we need to hear if we're Christians here this morning. If you're a Christian here this morning, and Luke has said that Christmas is true, and that there is a pattern at the beginning of Jesus' life that you'll see right the way through it, and it's the pattern of rejection, we need to hear the challenge of that. I heard a story about a month or two back of a a wonderful Christian surgeon who worked up in the centre of London. He was a a cancer specialist, an oncologist. And uh, he was marginalised because of his Christian faith. He was the Surgeon General for London in cancer care. And because he would receive many patients in great need and because of his Christian convictions, he would say in a non-threatening, appropriate way, do you have a faith, having shared the news of terminal cancer? Do you have a faith in this great time of need? or Something like that. Someone raised a complaint to his superiors. He was put on gardening leave immediately. He went to tribunal because he refused to go quietly. He said, I've done nothing wrong. The tribunal said, you've done nothing wrong. And yet he was pensioned off. His name was dragged through the mud. He could never practice medicine again. All because of his Christian convictions. Now, that's an extreme example, but let me ask you this question. Is there anything of the rejection that we see at the beginning of Jesus' life, that we see right the way through it, in your life? If you are a Christian, if you're living an authentic life, this is what you need to expect. This is not extraordinary. This is ordinary Christian experience. That if you are a light in darkness, if you speak carefully and wisely, if you live a godly life, you will be rejected by the world. If you're walking with Jesus, you will be rejected. It's the blueprint of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not... Receiving any rejection, you need to ask yourself a hard question. Are you being authentic? Are you living for Jesus in the workplace? Do your neighbors know that you're a Christian? Yeah, we need to speak wisely and carefully and sensitively, but do they know that you're a Christian? Or are you actually, as I was in my teenage years, a bit of a Christian chameleon, where you're a Christian on Sunday and Friday where it's easy, but when you're at college, nobody knows? and you're just one of the lads, are you living a life of integrity? If you are, it will mean rejection, but Jesus is with you every step of the way. Thirdly, in these verses, having looked at hope and rejection, let's think about beauty. We live in a society that loves the beauty myth. Billions of pounds are spent on uh, beauty products and good old L'Oreal Well, they tell me that I'm worth it, so if I'm worth it, you're certainly worth it. Here, in this cradle, in this crib, surrounded by blood and mucus as only babies can, there is the saviour of the world. There is the definition of beauty. There's uh, nothing on the outside to attract us to him, and yet there's the definition of beauty. And here's the timeless truth, friends. Let me ask you this question. What are you living your life for? It's a huge question. Don't spend your life living for beauty that will fade, wrinkles that will come, waistlines that will go south, shall we say. Don't spend so much time and attention on things that will fade, where here in this crib is real beauty, is a treasure that is so divine that matchless grace has made this treasure mine. Because this beauty and this treasure is a person and his name is Jesus. Don't be tempted to pursue wealth that's fleeting. Rather be drawn to this person, this saviour, who is the definition of beauty and ultimate treasure.